You're listening to the St. John's Diamond Creek podcast, recorded live each Sunday at St. John's Anglican Church, Diamond Creek. This episode presented by Senior Minister Tim Johnson. Uh, Well, hey again, everyone. Uh, We have been uh, looking through the book of Ruth uh, over the last uh, three weeks. It's uh, part four, the final instalment today in the book of Ruth. We're going to have the reading uh, in a little bit, and Em's going to bring that. Um, But I just wanted to sort of set the context uh, for what we're doing and bring you up to speed if uh, tonight's your first night uh, or you haven't, uh, haven't been here through all of the series. So we've been thinking uh, through this series about where do you find hope in the midst of the hard times uh, that we face. All of us have hard times of uh, differing levels in our own life. So where do you, where do you look for hope and relief uh, in the midst of the hard times? Um, and hope comes in different forms, doesn't it? We look for uh, hope and relief in different ways. Um, lots of times we, we think to ourselves, look, if, if only this would happen then everything would be better. Uh, If only my exams were over, life would be so much better. Okay, we sort of, we look for that hope beyond exams, particularly BCE students at the moment, uh, looking for that hope over the horizon when the exams are all done. Um, We look for hope in relationships. You know, life would be so much better if I was just in that relationship with that other person. Or maybe if my relationship was in a stronger place, a uh, few struggles at the moment, and if, if, only, if only I wasn't so busy at work, got a different job, uh, then things would be better, or if only my spouse or my girlfriend or my boyfriend wasn't so busy, uh, things would be better. We, we look for hopes, don't we, in different ways. When we're sick, um, we look for hope. We look to doctors to help us. We look to uh, the skills of a surgeon to help us. Um, we look for hopes in lots of different ways, in the various hard times that we face. Uh, And it's true, isn't it, that often these hopes are short-lived. They're short-lived hopes. They might give us relief for a little bit of time. They might be a bit like an an eye in the middle of the storm, Um, but they don't always last a long time. They're not permanent sources of hope. Now, please hear what I'm saying. There's nothing wrong with these things. They're good things to look forward to. Um, we need as human beings to have, you know, hope for things that are coming. Um, but what happens when they fail? What happens when uh, we've been hanging out for that holiday because things will be just so much better if we're going to have a holiday and then your kids spend the whole time being sick during the holiday? Hypothetical situation, of course, um, bearing a lot of resemblance to my last holiday uh, as to what happened. Or the new job that you've longed for, you know, if only it'd be better if I got that job, turns out to be just as demanding, just as frustrating as the one that you did have. The relationship that you've been dreaming of, it it doesn't fulfil everything that you'd hoped it would be. Um, Often these short-term hopes, these things that we long for, they don't actually fulfil us or they don't satisfy in the way that we had hoped they would. Um, Or they might give us relief for a little bit of time and then the next wave of hard times come. And uh, those hopes that we long for simply can't stand up under the wave of the hard times that follow. Where do we find ultimate hope? Where do we find something that is lasting, that is permanent, 
uh, that can withstand all of the waves of hard times that come? Um, That's the question that we want to look at as we come to this last chapter of Ruth today. Um, And uh, this is the last exciting instalment of this story. Uh, And let me just recap uh, where we've been going so far. This is a story all about hard times. It's focused particularly on two women and their stories and the hard times that they faced. Uh, Ruth and Naomi. Um, The hard times included the fact that both of their husbands have died. Uh, Right at the start, they're left as widows. Uh, In that culture, in that society, uh, women were unable to work really uh, for themselves. So it was unclear where their food was going to come from. Their security looked uh, in really shaky uh, situation. Uh, and then there's a bit of relief from that because Ruth is able to uh, get some food. She's able to uh, go and, and work in the field of a guy called Boaz. She's able to pick wheat and uh, barley. Uh, and the immediate crisis, the immediate fear of starvation um, is relieved because they have some food. But then Naomi thinks, well, there's something better than this. Maybe if I can matchmake Ruth with Boaz then that'll be a bit more of a lasting hope. That'll be a bit more secure. Uh, And so we saw Naomi, kind of the scheming mother-in-law, in in a nice way, uh, trying to set up Ruth and Boaz. And that's what we read about uh, last week and and Kirk spoke to us about, uh, where we had this scene on the threshing room floor, okay, Uh, where they kind of process uh, the barley. Uh, And we had the romantic music playing as Ruth and Boaz, the camera zoomed in on the beautiful couple, Um, And Ruth basically asks Boaz uh, to marry her. She she uses this line, she says, um, throw your your cloak over me, kind of like put your wing around me, which was a way of saying, um, I want you to to marry me, to play this role that that Kirk talked about of being a guardian redeemer. Uh, I'm going to talk a bit bit more about that in a minute. Um, Step into our situation, offer us hope uh, and marry me. And we waited with bated breath for Boaz's response. Will this be resolved? Will we come to a happy conclusion here? And we got Boaz's response in Ruth chapter 3 verse 11. He said, and now my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you asked. Yes! All of the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character tick. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Dun, dun, dun. Okay. We've hit a snag. It looked like everything was going to be resolved. She said, will you marry me? Will you step in? Yes, I will. But there's a problem. There's this other person who stands in the way of the relationship being realized. There's a relative who is nearer who has the first responsibility to the family uh, and who is in a position to marry Ruth first. It's like a a blow to us as the readers. It's a twist that Hollywood would be proud of. Uh, We have to wait, and Ruth has to wait to see how things are going to be sorted out. Um, Em's going to read this in a minute, but again, this idea of a guardian redeemer is really important for understanding the story. It's kind of like a technical legal term. Someone who had particular responsibilities in that society to act in different ways, four different ways that a guardian redeemer uh, could act, okay? They could step in 
to redeem property that had been lost. So if people have got into poverty and had to sell their land, then the, the, the guardian redeemer, this family member who is close, has a responsibility to step in and pay to get that land back on behalf of the family to rescue the people who have had to sell it because of their financial difficulties. So a guardian redeemer has a responsibility to redeem property, to, to rescue, to save and, and win back the property. Uh, if a person really got into hardship and sold themselves into slavery, the guardian redeemer was to step in and buy the person's freedom, rescue them out of this slavery that they got themselves in, uh, to redeem a person. Uh, they had a role of seeking justice, so if you got into trouble, uh, someone was acting unjustly towards you, you had no way of defending yourself, guardian redeemers had to come in and provide justice or help you seek justice, go to court for you, go into battle for you to protect you. Uh, and then the last one, the fourth one, which uh, Kirk role-played for us last week, uh, stranger situation, but where you have uh, a, a widow who has no children, the guardian redeemer uh, steps in to marry the widow um, and the first child they have, the first son that they have, actually belongs to the man who has died, the father, and carries on his family line as a way of ensuring that, that he isn't forgotten and that his family line uh, carries on. Um, so those are the different ways that they can act and it's important as you'll see and, and hear this story. Um, and as we move into chapter 4, this is basically a courtroom drama, okay? Think suits or law and order, going back a bit, uh, movies like A Few Good Men, any books by John Grisham, have, have, I, have I missed anyone yet? Um, the Good Wife, is that, is that kind of, I, don't, I haven't really watched that one, so I don't really know. Um, okay, it's one of those scenes where everything comes to a climax in the court, what's going to be decided, how's this going to play out? Uh, chapter 4 of Ruth, uh, page 212, if you want to follow it in the Blue Bibles, uh, that are in the seats, uh, or grab your phone and uh, pull up your Bible app, and Em's going to read it to us. Thanks. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the ga town gate and sat th down there, just as the guardian redeemer, redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling a piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except for you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, On the day that you buy the land from Naomi, you will acquire Ruth, Ruth the Moabite of the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, 
one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing the transaction in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilanon, and Marlon. I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabite, Marlon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrath and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, Praise to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab the father of Nashon. Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon the father of Boaz. Boaz the father of Obed. Obed the father of Jesse. And Jesse the father of David. There is a purpose to all those names. We'll get to that. Not for no reason did we put you through that pain. Um, So Boaz is not the sort of guy to muck around. Okay, First thing the next morning, he goes straight to to the town gate. Town gate is the place where all of the business in those times took place. It's the courtroom, it's the business centre. So he's going there to find this guy uh, that he needs to deal with. Uh, And the action moves fast. He pretty much sits down and who should come along but exactly the guy that he's looking for. So he calls him over and he gets... 10 elders to join them. They're witnesses. They need to observe what's going on, make sure that justice is being served, that things are being done the right way. Uh, And Boaz says to this guy, oh, there's this land available and you're first in line. Would you like it? No mention of Ruth. Did you notice that? First up, he just talks about land. He's playing his cards in a particular order, okay? He's being very careful about the way that he plays his hand. Uh, he offers land to this guy, uh, and this, this guy's uh, eyes light up. He's really excited. Yes, he wants to enhance his property for- portfolio. Uh, he would love uh, to have this land. He's very willing to act as this sort of guardian redeemer and step in and take the land. Now, just a little pause here as to what's going on. The language that's used here uh, says that Naomi is selling the land. Um, a bit unusual because widows at that time couldn't really own land. Very clear in the Old Testament law 
how land get pass, gets passed on. So uh, Numbers chapter 27, which is one of the books of the law, kind of lays it out a bit like a will. You know, in a will you say, um, if I die, my property goes to my wife. Uh, if she's not still alive, then to my children. It's all laid out in order. It's a, it's a legal thing. Similarly, land was passed on to the son, um, sons in order. If there were no sons, then to daughters, which was pretty progressive for the time, but daughters were in line. Uh, if there were no children, then to an uncle. If there were no uncles, then to the nearest relative. Okay, so what's going on here is they're trying to identify who is the nearest relative. It's not Boaz, this other guy's closer. He's first in line. But why is there all this language about redeeming? Okay, it goes back to what I was saying before. Most likely, Elimelech and his family, when they were in the midst of famine and had to flee the country to go to Moab, they probably had to sell up. They were so poor, they were so in difficulty that they had to sell the land. So this is really about who is going to step in and redeem this land, buy it back uh, and be in charge of it on behalf of the family. This guy's very keen to do that. I will redeem it, he says. Sure, he can make good use of this land and he's happy to step in. So Boaz says, that's, that's great. This is where he plays the next card, okay? Uh, that's great because when you do that... Um, you actually will uh, have to marry Ruth, the Moabite. Emphasis on the fact that she's from this foreign country that the Israelites hate, Moab and Israel, not on good terms. Uh, he emphasises that probably to make it less appealing to this guy. Well, what does this guy do? Immediately he starts backpedalling. He doesn't want to damage his own inheritance. Okay, If they produce an heir then it's, remember, it's in the dead man's name, not in his name, so he doesn't want a part of that. It really smacks of, of self-interest. He did want the land when it was for him, but when it's about supporting this family and continuing the line of Marlon, who has died, well, he wants out of the whole relationship, the whole deal, and he handballs it uh, to Boaz and says, why don't you do it, Boaz? Well, Boaz is more than happy to do it. Uh, that's what he wanted all along. That's why he was playing the cards in the order. He wants to marry Ruth. He thinks Ruth is awesome. Uh, he knows her character. He knows her love. And so he gladly announces his intentions and they seal the deal by handing over the sandal. That's weird, isn't it? That is, that is strange. You've learned something about ancient cultures. My question is, how do they get home when they've got each other's sandal? Do they hop home? Anyway, too much detail, we don't need to go there. Um, but that's where they, they, they sign the deal and it's all done. And in the closing section of the book, we see Boaz and Ruth get married. Everything is resolved. They give birth to a son, his name is Obed, uh, and he's a special uh, gift uh, to them, but also to Naomi who suffered so much. Now remember, when we started this story, it was Naomi's story, wasn't it? At the start of the story... It was all about Naomi. She was the main character and then it shifted in the middle to Ruth and Boaz. But now at the end we return to Naomi and she's surrounded by the women of the town. Remember when she came back home after being away, she was surrounded by these same women in Bethlehem and she said to them, don't call me Naomi anymore because Naomi means pleasant or sweet. And she said, my life is not pleasant. My life is not sweet. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Because I'm empty and my life is bitter. And God, God's the one who's done it. God's emptied me out. God's made my life bitter. Don't call me 
pleasant and sweet anymore, change my name. And yet here at the end, surrounded by these same women that she said that to, we see Naomi with this little baby clutched to her breast, this grandson who's described as a restorer of life and a nourisher in old age. Uh, We see the fact that that God has been good, actually. He's stuck with Naomi. Uh, He's given her what she needs in the midst of her hard times. And at the end, we see that she holds this baby all the more precious because Ruth is the one who has given birth to this baby. Ruth is worth more than seven sons. She's so great and she's been so loving and so loyal to her mother-in-law. We see that, in fact, God has proved that he is good, he is gracious, he is kind, he is faithful in Naomi's life, that he has provided for her in the hard times and he's given her hope uh, through the birth of this grandson. It's a good story, isn't it? It's a good story and it's got a great ending, uh, seeing that that God has stuck with these women and, and been with them in the hard times. But is that all that there is? Well, no, because the story doesn't actually just end with Naomi holding the baby. Em had to read through a whole list of names. Why is it that the book ends like that? Well, the book ends by pointing beyond this story into the future to say that not only is there this little baby Obed, but he is the grandfather of someone great who is going to come, David, who became the greatest king in Israel's history. You might remember that this book is set in the time of the Judges. I described it as the Wild West time in the history of Israel. There was violence, there was anarchy, there was no central rule, it was everyone for themselves. It was a really hard time. And they spent most of their time under foreign oppression, um, being uh, enslaved uh, and subject to these foreign powers that ruled over them. And yet at the end, there's this hope as they look to the future, to David, who is going to come, who's a king who brings peace from their foreign enemies and unites the country together to usher in this kind of golden era uh, for the whole nation. So the story ends by saying, we've seen the story of this little family and and it's a great and it's a nice little story, but something even better is coming and broader that is going to be a benefit to the whole nation, this descendant, David, is going to come and he will usher in this golden period for Israel. Uh, And actually, it's such a good time and David is such a central figure in the history of Israel um, that God himself makes promises uh, that one of David's own descendants is always actually going to rule over the nation, be the king um, and bring in this great kingdom uh, that God has promised them. But when you keep reading through the Bible, remember that Ruth is just a story within the bigger story, which is in the Bible. You see that it looks like this promise that God has made is a joke. It looks like um, the hope that God offers them actually comes to nothing. All that follows, really, in the history of Israel is hard times. It's downhill from David's rule. And uh, again, foreign nations attack them, uh, take them captives. Uh, At the end of the first part of the Bible, what's called the Old Testament, Not only is there no descendant of David ruling, there is no king at all. They're just completely under the rule of foreign powers. And you sort of think, well, where's the hope going to come from? How is God going to offer any hope 
in the midst of the hard times? And where is the ultimate hope going to come from? But you see, just as the book of Ruth ends with a list of names, charting the descendants who would come from this baby who was born, when you turn to the New Testament, the second part of the Bible, the very start of the New Testament starts with a list of names. This is how the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 1, begins. This is the genealogy, kind of the list of uh, descendants, really. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Uh, And in the verses that follow, uh, we get a list of names, the same list of names listed at the end of the book of Ruth, including Ruth's own name. Uh, In Jesus' genealogy, list of uh, the descendants of Jesus, there are four women mentioned. Um, It's really unusual because this is usually just a list of blokes, but four women are mentioned. And there's pictures of them on the walls of our church. Um, Those are the four women who are mentioned. Um, You might have just sort of thought they were strange pictures and referred to it as the strange blue lady um, down the end. Um, But these are are paintings that uh, Libby Byrne did for us a a few years ago, picking up the four women who come in uh, Jesus' uh, line of uh, ancestry. So at the end you've got Tamar, uh, then you've got Rahab, uh, then you've got Ruth. Uh, That picture's going to come up on the screen so you can focus on that one. Uh, And then Mary, Jesus' own mother, four women who are mentioned. And it's a strange list because... Of those four women who are mentioned, two of them uh, are non-Israelites. They're foreigners. They're people who are outside God's people, people that you wouldn't think would be included but are. One of the women is a prostitute. Another one pretended to be a prostitute so she could seduce her father-in-law into having sex with her. So it's a mixed bunch. And yet all of them are part of God's plan to bring Jesus into the world. Just a sideline. Uh, never think that you are someone who could be, uh, should be cut out of God's plan because of what you've done in your life or what's happened. Don't think, well, there's no way that God would ever accept me. In the list of Jesus' own um, ancestors, four women are mentioned and they are a very mixed bunch and they are people that you wouldn't think would be included and that is how God works. If you think that you shouldn't count to God or that you've done something that would count you out, you haven't because God includes all sorts of people and his business uh, is dealing with a whole variety of people and bringing them into relationship with himself, including Ruth, this Moabite woman who comes under the shelter of God's wing and who is included in his people, who shows loyalty and love to Naomi and who becomes part of the royal line of history, uh, a great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus himself. And it's in the birth of Jesus that ultimate hope is found. Uh, Although the book of Ruth ends happily with resolution and with hope, uh, Naomi and Ruth have been spared from death. It's a temporary solution, isn't it? Death comes to all of us. All of us have to face that one day. And although the book of Ruth points forward a bit to David, who's going to be this great king and usher in peace, when you read his life story, it's marred by sin and failure and compromise. 
and there's no lasting peace that comes from his rule. Even the best of our human hopes are flawed and they're temporary and we need a bigger hope. We need a greater hope that will last and be more than just the temporary hopes that we look to. And in the same way that Ruth and Naomi look for a redeemer in this story, they look for someone to rescue them, they look for someone who can step into their situation and do something, we need that too. We need rescue. It may not be from the same situation that they face, but all of us are enslaved to sin, the things that we do wrong, which put us out of relationship with God. And all of us need to find a hope that is going to be lasting, even in the face of uh, death that's going to come to all of us. And that is the hope that Jesus offers to each one of us. The trajectory of hope in the book of Ruth, the trajectory of hope in the entire Bible, is Jesus who is the one who gives ultimate hope to us. His death on the cross pays the price of sin, deals with every wrong thing that we have done, so that we are forgiven and fully back into a relationship with God if we come to Jesus Christ and put our trust in him. He's the one who puts us right with God and says, you can be in that relationship. He redeems us, rescues us from the slavery that we have to sin. And his resurrection from the dead offers new life and a hope that even death cannot touch, something that is lasting and permanent, and gives us that security that he will redeem us, he will rescue us from the grave, from death itself. For every single one of us, a day is going to come in the future. It might be near or it might be a long, long way away for for some of you who who are very young, where someone's going to sit by your bedside as life is slipping away. I've done that as I've sat by people's bedside as they've been dying, and where all human hopes have failed at that point, And they will ask you the question, where is your hope? Where is your hope? Where does it lie? And at that point, there is only one hope that suffices. There's only one hope that is ultimate, that is lasting, that is death-defying, and that is Jesus. Trusting him as your redeemer, your lord, your friend, that's the place that ultimate hope is found. Uh, If you're someone who hasn't yet found that hope, Maybe you're still exploring who Jesus is. Maybe you still want to know more about this guy that I've been talking about tonight. Please do. Please explore more about who he is, what he's on about, what he says, and what he has done for you. But if you've been checking out Jesus for a while, but you just haven't made that decision about him, can I urge you not to wait any longer? Jesus is the place that this ultimate hope is found. He's the one who can ride us through any of the hard times that we face, wave after wave, whatever comes. He is the one where hope is to be found. And let me encourage you not to wait any longer. I'll love to talk to you after the service more about what it means to put your trust in Jesus and follow him and find your hope in him. Don't wait till that bedside conversation because it's not just a hope for the future. But actually, Jesus is the one who offers us life and hope and security in the here and now as well. So for those of you who are followers of Jesus, in the midst of the hard times, don't run away from Jesus, but cling to him and look to him, knowing that there is no better, no more sustaining hope, no more lasting hope than in him.
life is full of hard times. You're going to face a whole series of hard things that will come your way. And rather than just clutching for the next little bit of hope, the next thing that will ride us through, cling tight to Jesus, who is the ultimate hope. Jesus, who is God's son. Jesus, who is the son of David. Jesus, who is the son of Ruth and of Boaz. So let me pray for us. Lord God, we do recognise that life uh, is full of hardships and hard times. All of us face different circumstances. Please help us in the midst of those hard times to look to Jesus as our ultimate source of hope. We thank you that uh, hope in him is permanent and it is secure. It is satisfying and it is good. And thank you that it is available to each one of us. Help us all to look to Jesus, to put our hope in Jesus, to put our trust in Jesus and to cling to him even in the midst of the hard times that we face. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us. If you've got any questions about this podcast, connect with us on our website, stjohnsdc.org.au or at facebook.com slash stjohnsdc. Don't forget, you can join us live in Diamond Creek every Sunday at 9.30am and 6pm.